welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA Recruitment, Specialist Payroll Recruiters. Hello and welcome to the Payroll Podcast. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by the lovely Roz Hendren, a highly experienced strategic payroll and HR professional manager who possesses over 30 years of payroll, HR, business and management expertise, all areas that I'm going to be tackling in this pod, so do stay tuned. There are a few people in, in the industry with more management credentials than Roz and perhaps That is why she has been so instrumental in playing active roles for both the Chartered Management Institute, or the CMI, and CIPP. And that's where Ros currently holds the position of board director, but we're going to tackle that a little bit later. Currently, Ros is involved in tutoring the foundation degree in payroll management on behalf of the CIPP, which involves delivering module tutorials, supporting people through assignment writing and marking of assignments. And she's also a tutor for the coveted MSc in business and reward management. And that's in conjunction with both the CIPP and the University of Derby. Ros was also a finalist in the Payroll World Awards 2004 and was awarded the CIPP Payroll Employee of the Year in 2007. So a hugely passionate person about the payroll industry. She's very passionate about upskilling the profession, very knowledgeable on compliance and strategy. And these are all elements that I'm really keen to delve into so that we can provide our listeners with a fantastic platform for them, hopefully, to utilize some of Ross's unique insights, knowledge and career journey advice to develop themselves within this fantastic industry that is payroll. So welcome, Ross, to the Payroll Podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. And uh, thank you for allowing me to share my experiences with your listeners today. No, absolute pleasure. We've known each other for many years anyway. We always catch up at conferences and award ceremonies. So it's nice to, to catch up again over the, uh, over the radio waves here, so to speak. And um, we always start with some questions just to get us straight into the mix. So five quick questions. To kick things off, was tell us a little bit about your journey into payroll and how it's led you to where you are right now. My route into payroll was the traditional one that most will recognise. That is, I didn't plan it. It just happened. You fell into it. Indeed. But I'm confident that the CIPP proactive education programmes are breaking down that traditional approach now. And the next generation of payrollers are actually going to choose this as a career path. Anyway, when I separated from my first husband at the age of 25, I had a job in payroll, but not a career. I recognised that, you know, if I was going to change that state, I needed to engage in formal learning and qualifications, which is why I mentioned the work that the CIPP do. As it happened, the guy who lived next door to my parents had completed the diploma in payroll management, as it was known formally back then. I'm going back quite a while, by the way. And so I was able to get some insight into what it entailed and what it had given him. And that inspired me to sign up. And so I spent the next two years completing the diploma. But as I was graduating, The Institute was just launching the MSc in payroll management with the University of Westminster. And so in a moment of madness, (laughs) I decided to sign up for another two years of postgraduate learning. Wow. I think I was just in that learning mode and decided that, you know, instead of having a break, let's just go for it. I was frightened that if I had a break, I'd never pick it up again. On that program, I met several fellow learners from Ceridian. And shortly after I graduated, there was a position that became available within Ceridian and I applied for it and was successful in uh, securing that role. So that's when I made the transition from in-house to outsource. Okay. What was your first role at Ceridian? Because you were there for seven years, is that right? Indeed. So my first role was managing new business implementation setup team. Wow. So we brought in all of the new contracts that were sort of the small to medium-sized enterprises. So, yeah, my team was responsible for bringing all of those new contracts in, setting them up on the systems, running them for the first couple of months, and then allocating them out to the pay centres that were situated around the country. It's quite a big first role to get in payroll, come straight in at that level. You must be good at handling pressure. Indeed, indeed. I think I thrive on pressure. I quite enjoy that. But it, but it also gave me the opportunity to work with lots of people across the organization because, of course, I had to speak on a regular basis with all of the managers of all the pay centers to negotiate what contracts they were going to get handed over and how they fit with the current portfolio of work that they were delivering. You know, there was good negotiating skills as well that were required for that. 
So as well as doing the MSc, obviously I've now become a tutor for the MSc in business and reward management. I know, I think then you said it was Westminster. I think now it's associated with the University of Derby. Obviously this role is going to involve a lot of, I'm assuming, writing and updating things like study materials. I'm assuming you're delivering module tutorials and other bits and pieces. How do you find the time and and how did you get involved in becoming a tutor? Okay. I didn't actually put myself for a tutor in the early days because I think I was still sort of getting my head around forging my career and moving forward with that. I devoted a lot of time to upskilling myself and didn't really have much time available to do other extracurricular activities. Sure. When the programme moved from the University of Westminster to the University of Derby, we obviously had to do a, a rewrite of the material, but I didn't feel confident enough to do that at that stage, so I let somebody else do that. But the person who was writing the material around reward strategy, which is what I sort of seemed to gravitate towards, didn't want to deliver it. So the deal was struck. She wrote it and I delivered it. Great. <laughs> My question about how you find the time will become more relevant as we go through this podcast, because we've got a lot to get through in terms of just how much you do. Now, obviously, you're someone that's got to the top of the pale profession, if you like. And, and as a result of that, you are invited to do a lot of keynote talks and conferences. And I picked up on one of your latest ones, which was about developing a strategic approach to reward design. I wondered if you could just tell our listeners, if you can put it into a quick synopsis, if that's possible, of why you think it's important that businesses do align their reward strategies to its wider organization objectives and needs, and perhaps also highlight some of the basic concepts that, that would make up a successful reward strategy. CIPD tell us that reward strategy concerns the design and implementation of reward policies and practices to support and advance organizational objectives. So I think that's really key here because, you know, what they're saying is that one is integral to the other. So if you don't get it right, then basically, you know, you're going to miss the target. If you imagine a space rocket, and this was the sort of analogy that I shared with the audience at the CIPP's annual conference. If you were setting your mission to go to the, go to the moon and you don't get your strategy right in terms of achieving that, then potentially you're going to end up in Mars. So somewhere completely different. So you've got to pay attention to what you're trying to achieve as an organization. What are those broader objectives and how does that feed down through the different levels? within the organization to be something meaningful on the ground. Sure. Yeah. So it's all about that end objective. So if you are hoping to achieve increased profit margin, then you need to set your reward strategies to funnel into that. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like that would be an obvious way to go, though, would it not? Would a business is not following that kind of approach at the moment. You'd think so, but... Part and parcel of this is understanding how individuals and or teams work together. So if you've got an objective that needs to rely on a team working effort and you're motivating and engaging individuals through your reward program at an individual level, then you're not going to achieve that collaborative effort because you've missed the mark by focusing on individual reward. Yeah, I see. So... Things like that that you've got to pay attention to, to make sure everybody's driving in the right direction. And also, different divisions within organizations tend to go off at a bit of a tangent sometimes and interpret, you know, strategies within the objective paradigm to what they think it is rather than what the organization actually set out to achieve in the first place. So understanding that in context is really important, but also understanding what the different individuals require as well. So whilst you've got to consider the collaborative effort, you've also need to consider how individuals are motivated in themselves. And that will be different for everybody. And also what we're seeing now, Nick, is a shift in terms of the newer generations coming through into the workplace. So the Gen Y and Z, you know, the millennials. Yeah. Yeah. What they're looking for, which is completely different potentially to what any of the rest of us have, have, you know, would see as being the traditional reward structure. So payroll people should naturally be quite good at this then because they're quite used to wearing different hats and handling different policies and stakeholders and being challenged, if you like, to deliver a great service across so many different changing policies and stakeholders. I reckon that it's kind of 
a good place for a ward to sit with a with a with a payroll professional, if you like, if they, if they have to sort of bring the wider organisational objectives into into one aligned reward view. Absolutely, yeah, and of course, the big part that payroll plays in all of this is the compliance angle, because I've seen all too often, Nick, in organisations where you know the HR or the reward teams have gone off and they've built nice, motivating and engaging reward structures. When we, you know, it's brought back to the payroll table, payroll have to then turn around and say, well, you can't do that. There's a tax issue there or a, a compliance sure. issue. And so if you want to do that, we're going to have to do it as a, you know, a grossed up element in the payroll to make sure that we're not missing the mark when it comes to compliance. So payroll absolutely plays a massive role or should play a massive role in helping design reward structure and strategy. Great. Fantastic. Now, I have to ask this question, Roz, because I saw your LinkedIn profile and you have so many letters after your name. I think I saw MSC, CMGR, FCMI, DIP, FCIPP, DIP and FHEA, just to name just a few. I think you've also, um, as I mentioned earlier, passed the CMI and the CIPP. Rather than me trying to work out what they are, I had to ask, burning question to me, can you tell me a little bit more about your educational journey yourself? Particularly because you've become a tutor, so you've gone through that process and you've kind of touched upon your MSc already. A little bit more about your educational journey and how in particular you've used those learning experiences, because they're not just payroll-related qualifications, to develop and progress your career to where it is now. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it, all of those letters? <laughs> That's good. It's impressive. <laughs> so I first completed, obviously, the Diploma in Payroll Management, which gave me MCIPP DIP. And then I followed that with the MSc, allowing me to use those letters. But the stance with CIPP is that if you invest the time in achieving the MSD, then you're granted fellowship. Right, okay. To recognise what you've given back to the industry by promoting the industry through that learning process. So that gave me the FCIPP dip. Whilst I was at Ceridian, and I think this, this is a really key point here, I was fortunate enough to be enrolled on a, a formal management training programme which I think has been invaluable in supporting my career advancement to date, as I didn't just have technical payroll skills, but I also had the technical management skills. That's a big area, I think, where a lot of payroll managers today fall down because they've got the really good, solid technical background, but they don't. their employers fail to invest in their learning from a formal perspective in the management piece, and that's really key. But I was fortunate and it gave me the confidence to manage people as well in a really strategic and supportive manner. I'm really passionate about this and I wish more organisations would invest in relevant management training programmes. It does seem to be a common theme within the podcast, actually, that we've done. We've done others with you know, the likes of Kate Upcraft and, and, and Max um, and others that, that have all kind of said that businesses could really do more to invest in, in, in their staff in terms of that management training piece. That, that seems to be are one of the missing pieces in the jigsaw for, for developing strong leaders for the future. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think we really need to bang the drum on this one and encourage organisations to invest in this area. Anyway, that management training that I was fortunate to have allowed me to complete a management diploma, which is where the letters MCMI dip came in because that was with the Chartered Management Institute. But, you know me, I wasn't and I wanted to continue developing my skills in management as well. So I worked really hard on identifying my skill gaps as a manager and engaging in learning to keep developing that skill set. And then it meant that I could apply for and was granted a chartered membership through proving the application of that development in, in the contextual environment. And then following on from that, I applied for fellowship of CMI and uh, was granted that as well. So I've proven myself to the Chartered Management Institute as worthy of having fellowship and being a chartered manager. Yeah. And then about five years ago, I was given the opportunity by CIPP to engage on um, the postgraduate learning program. This was a postgraduate certificate in work-based learning. Right. So a teaching qualification. Yeah. And that's provided me with invaluable skill sets through which I've been able to enhance the MSc and foundation degree learning programs, so giving something back to the learner population that come through the CIPP. And it ensures that the learners get the best experience they can from their respective learning programs. And that gave myself and some others who were fortunate to do it as well, fellowship of the Higher Education Academy, and that's where FHEA comes from. 
Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you're definitely an opportunity taker rather than someone who, you know, shies away from it because every opportunity has been given to you, certainly in your educational journey, you seem to have grabbed with both hands and, um, and, and, and pressed on. I'm sort of couple of years I might be interviewing Dr. Ross Hendren, I reckon, if it comes in front of it. <laughs> but I mean, you've clearly used those qualifications. You're involved in, you know, some quite very high profile, significant board level strategic HR and, and payroll projects over the years. And you've got a lot of board level strategic experience. And it's something that I know many of our listeners are really keen to know more about, especially in terms of how they can develop their careers to, to get that kind of level of exposure, to, to get this level of authority and, and start having some sort of senior board level conversations within their businesses. So can I ask you what advice you would give to perhaps a payroll manager that's listening to this right now who is really keen to have an impact at board level, but isn't quite sure how to elevate themselves to get there? That's a really good question, Nick. So being able to influence strategic decisions at board level yeah, requires quite a big range of skills. It's not rocket science, but if you're not aware of those skill sets or don't possess those skills or expertise, you're unlikely to be able to have a voice and make a difference. It's really key here. So what do you need to know? Well, okay, if I think back to my own journey and experiences that have positioned me to be able to deliver strategic influences at senior levels within organizations. So firstly, understand your business, its goals and ambitions, its internal and external drivers, and its people and culture, because any strategic decisions that are made will need to consider all of these aspects. As a strategic influencer, if you've already done your homework in terms of what matters to your organization and what's going to deliver the right results to support its goals and ambitions that we talked about before, you should have no problem being able to present your business case for change in such a way that the decision to adopt your recommended strategy will almost be a foregone conclusion. Secondly, work on developing your gravitas. What do we mean by that? Well, it's a bit of a buzzword at the moment, this. I've attended one or two webinars myself on this. Basically, you need to be clear about the image that you are presenting to your stakeholders. How do you engage with your audience? Are you reflecting the right image? Do you show engagement in all of your stakeholder meetings and discussions, actively taking part? So you need to reflect on how you show yourself in all of, in all of this activity. Um, or do you sit back and let others lead the discussion? Sure. Be real, cr really critical sure. about yourself. Do you proactively get involved in the business of the organization? Uh, or do you only engage in what impacts on your own sphere of work? These are things that will make you stand out. Are you a leader? There's a bit of self-reflection there, isn't there? A bit of self-reflection required. You know, it's not always you haven't got the opportunity. Sometimes you've got to ask yourself the question as to whether you're doing the right things to be given that opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you need to be very self-aware, you know, and have enough emotional intelligence to understand the image that you're creating, but also the impact that you're having on all of those around you. Yes. Yeah, so all of your stakeholders thinking about are you a leader? And if so, are you an inspirational leader? Are you or are you just a manager? You know, not that being just a manager is is any less important, but it's a very different role. You know, if you're confused about your image, your stakeholders are also going to be confused. And so they're going to be yeah. unsure as to how to react to you and any recommendations that you make. That's a good point. Yeah. So, and finally, you know, never stop learning, particularly about all the relevant change that's going on within the industry or your business specifically. Because when you're selling strategic change at board level, what the directors are going to be looking to see is how credible you are. If they feel comfortable that you're knowledgeable and you're constantly scanning the horizon to see what's coming next, keeping up to date with legislation, technology, the economic climate, what employees want, and they're not just acting or reacting in the moment, then you'll start to build up your image as a trusted advisor to the business. And the more they trust you, the more they will trust your recommendations. Fantastic. Great advice. I think um, if people want to rewind and make notes, I'd highly recommend it because this is a really popular subject that we're getting asked a lot in, in terms of feedback on this podcast. And, you know, you know, we're speaking to industry leaders like yourself was so people want to know how they can be seen to become an industry leader themselves and how, you know, not just externally within the wider payroll world, if you like, but also internally within their within their businesses. Um, so I think that's really fantastic advice. So thanks for sharing that. 
you've gained, obviously we've touched upon it already once, you've gained management experience both within HR and payroll outsourcing industries, and you mentioned Solidian earlier, um, as well as other large BPOs which are operating in the business. But you also possess large-scale in-house payroll management expertise, and you've worked for companies with payrolls of over 34,000 employees to, to give some context to the size of payroll operations that you have managed. How do these two environments differ and how has getting exposure to both working environments, how has that helped your career? So again, another interesting question. Outsourcing again gave me the opportunity to work cross-functionally between payroll and HR, which was initially at sort of a transactional level. And it's kind of, I suppose, expanded naturally from there. But many years ago, I took responsibility for a shared service centre. I'm going back quite a while delivering payroll and HR transactional operations, but the client experience wasn't a particularly good one. Sure. Having sort of observed what was happening, you know, both the payroll and the HR transactional teams were working completely independent of each other. I'm sure like most of your listeners will, uh, will recognize that traditionally payroll and HR have been managed by completely different divisions within an organization. And so their ways of working and approaches to things like management and strategic priorities are often completely different. And as a result, the two don't always pull together well. What we saw in this particular example was that neither team was aware of the impact their operational delivery had on the other. Sure. So, you know, just as an example, the HR transactional team had no visibility of the volume and nature of things like payroll queries that were being handled by the payroll team where contractual information had been input wrong at the beginning. And so, therefore, resulted in incorrect payments. So, you know, inaccuracies on the payroll. And similarly, the payroll team had no visibility of the volume of work that was being generated for HR to keep recruiting staff who'd left the business because generally they were unhappy with a less than accurate payroll service. So you can see how they were completely at odds with each other and not pulling together for the now, when we think about the organizational objectives, what is it you're trying to achieve and how do you need to get there as a collaborative effort? This is a prime example. So what did we do? Well, you know, look, my learning experiences have given me, I suppose, the, the skills to be able to approach this in a maybe a challenging way. So I introduced the concept of cross-functional working parties. What do I mean by that? Well, that working party was responsible for gathering feedback and experiences across the two disciplines into one pot, so not a separate investigation. We also included feedback from the client, and we used all of that as the basis of a joint improvement and development program. We also shuffled the office around so that the two teams could physically interact in a more proactive way, so, you know, almost forced them to work together. And that way they could share experiences around their joint learning programs. We also upskilled both teams to be knowledgeable in each other's processes, which not only enabled them to understand the impact of their actions on each other in a clearer way, but it also provided the opportunity for natural cover when resources were challenged. Yeah, so the end result, well, accuracy improved massively, productivity increased, and so cost was reduced, uh, and the client was really happy, and the workforce was happy. Everybody was a winner, and I, I guess you know, it all comes back to being open to change, being understanding of others and their needs and having an awareness of what's right for the business, not for individuals or individual teams. It's about that end goal. Working in recruitment, some, as I have done for, as you know, for nearly 20 years myself, a lot of people are reticent to go into payroll services or outsource BPOs when they've come from an in-house background. And I find it quite surprising. I think, um, uh, there's a lack of understanding both between those that only ever worked in, in the outsourcing environment going in-house and, and vice versa. But the reality is, I think for those that have made that transition, and maybe you've, you've gone to BPO and you've come back again into in-house afterwards, but those that gain the experience of both do tend to elevate through the payroll ranks quite quickly. And whether it's because you get that cross-functional exposure, you get more exposure to things like software, potentially implementation, certainly project management, and I guess a very payroll and HR focused object, uh, overall business objective if you're working for, for an outsourced provider that specialises in those areas, uh, which you wouldn't have that as a company-wide objective working in an in-house payroll. But I do see people, you know, once they, they have that exposure, I find they're able to elevate themselves 
quite quickly to some of these strategic level roles that we've been discussing. And yeah, I, despite that, I guess, trend that we, we can see as, as recruiters from this side of the table, it still seems to be a, a move that a lot of payroll people are very reticent to do. Um, they don't want to come away from what they know, which sometimes might be that they want to stay within the same sector, doing in-house payrolls, and their moves always remain sector specific. What are your views on it? Do you think more payroll people should be open to challenging themselves in different environments, like going from in-house retail, for example, payroll through to outsourcing? Or do you think it's better to champion what you already know and to cement your learning within one sector? Or maybe there isn't a correct answer to it, but what are your views? Because you've done both. Do you know what? I think this is about uh, individuals and what they want from their career. So a lot of people are perfectly happy to, you know, advance within their particular specialism within the industry, let's say, be that in-house or outsourced, and to sort of get as far as they can up the ladder. However, so I'm speaking about my journey personally here because for me, I think you're absolutely right in what you've said in that having both the in-house and outsourced experiences has given me so much more in terms of skill set and variety of experience because I could never have hoped to have achieved the amount of learning and development that I have had I stayed in one particular specialism. Sure. You know, and particularly in outsourcing, you're right, you know, I, I was given the opportunity to work across audit and risk, compliance, product strategies, so developing products that we were selling to market, which naturally then fell into actually sales support. And, and marketing, things like that. So you develop those kind of skill sets, running budgets, putting cost models together. So understanding, you know, the cost of delivery of a particular product. And those are all transferable skill sets. So, you know, they, they don't just apply to the outsourcing world. They apply across the, the function. But I think it gives you a, a rounded sure. set of skills that, as I say, are transferable. They're not specific to any industry. And also in outsourcing, because, you know, the, the business that you're in is delivering payroll, a huge number of organizations, potentially every organization that you work with, they are in their own specific industries. So you get all of that experience as well. You know, so if I think I've managed teams and, and been involved in clients who work in banking, in retail, in leisure, who all have their own unique requirements and complexities when it comes to payroll. And some of that will travel across all of the different functions so experiences can be shared, you know, but only apply to particular industries. But in any event, they're all hugely um, important experiences that you can take with you and feed back into the next thing that you do. Sure. Fantastic. Now, I had a question planned for a little bit later in this podcast, but I'm actually going to ask it now because I think it's relevant. But obviously, we mentioned at the start of the introduction here was uh, to the podcast, you've got over 30 years experience in payroll, and you've just mentioned some of the areas you've worked in, which you mentioned things like product management. So I know you've been involved in implementation, quality control, consultancy, and of course, strategic operational payroll management roles. Which has been your favorite? And why at the end of them all, and this may be the answer to that question, have you always averted back to what I would interpret as so we've always gone back to some large-scale, operationally focused payroll management positions? Is that really where your heart lies within payroll in that operational management piece? Or is that just the way that your career's panned out? Because you've got experience across such a wide range of payroll-related disciplines, if you like, rather than just payroll processing and payroll management. I just wondered if you had a personal favorite or a particular time which you absolutely loved and you wish you'd stayed in that or... You know, why is it you've typically always gone back to operational management? Hmm. So I don't think I've ever looked back and analysed my career in the way you've just described. <laughs> so let's see if I can answer. I have really engaged with all of these different roles that I've been fortunate to undertake. And I suppose largely because each one requires different skill sets. Although a lot, as I've said, include transferable skills. But because I, I like variety. But what would be my favourite? I think consultancy and strategic management are the areas that most engage me, probably because I like tackling issues and turning them around. I'm a bit of a masochist in that respect. So <laughs> the stickier the problem, the more I engage with it and see it as a challenge, you know. Um, but also I think it's because these areas allow me to utilise my 
full range of skills and experiences, whether they're technical, managerial, coaching and developing, designing solutions or selling and implementing change. And given that these opportunities, I suppose, mostly occur within large-scale organisations, I suppose maybe that means that's where my natural fit is. Sure, that makes sense. That's why I keep sort of getting that call back to that arena. Great. Well, you're clearly very passionate about the industry. That co- that comes through in, in loud and clear this end, which is which is great. Well, so we're going to find out a little bit more about you. Before we do, we're going to get to a quick advert break. So we're back in two moments. Einstein famously said that insanity was doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We believe it's time to try a new approach to recruitment. JGA Recruitment specialise in recruiting the top 15% of payroll and HR talent using innovative 24-7 attraction strategies that are proven to improve quality of hire, candidate retention and return on investment. De-risk your recruitment process today and hire better talent faster with JGA Recruitment. Visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. We're going to find out a bit more about you, Ros. Time to find out more about you. How would your friends describe you and how would your work colleagues describe you? Ooh, let me think about that. I don't think friends or work colleagues would describe me any different, really, as I think I've got the same approach to work as I do to personal life. So what would they say? Well, I think they'd say passionate, bubbly, dedicated, motivated to improve, educate and constantly evolve and engages fully in everything to get the maximum experience. Fantastic. And my knowledge of, of me knowing you over many years would completely concur with that with that, with that summary, which is great. <laughs> so can you tell me something about you then that perhaps other people won't know about you? Ooh, I am also a professional actress. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Tell me more. <laughs> When I was uh, in my formative years, it was the one thing I really, really wanted to do, but I won't bore you with why it never happened. But since then, I've, I've spent sort of 30 years doing amateur dramatics. In more recent years, I've actually engaged with an agent and um, I do bits and pieces from time to time. However, a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to be cast as the understudy for a one-woman play. Wow. And I managed to wrangle three performances. Great. Fantastic. Like, woman after my own heart here was. I mean, I, I have the same aspiration. I studied theatre. I did a master's in theatre before I got into there. also studied at drama school. So I should add here as well, on this particular section, we've got a podcast um, coming up later. It's already been recorded with Rebecca Mullins. And she gives me something which surprised me. So for those listening to this as, as a series of podcasts, look out for that when, we, when that recording comes out. Anyway, fantastic. So. For you, Oz, you are abducted by aliens who want to learn more about our species. What item would you take with you? <laughs> I think it'd have to be tea bags. Tea bags? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you think about it, it's what the nation runs on, isn't it? Cups of tea. <laughs> and there's nothing a nice cup of tea can't fix. You know, it provides comfort, calms you down, warms you up and helps the thought process. So invaluable. Fantastic. Fantastic. Do you have a personal favourite? Yeah, I like a good breakfast tea, but I'm also rather partial to an Earl Grey. Okay. Okay. So you, we'll, we'll let you take a mixture on this occasion, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> what game or instrument would you teach them? Oh, I think that would be, I'd teach them uh, the saxophone. Do you play or just you just like it? Uh, no, I don't play. My husband did play a little, um, but I just, I love the complex sounds that the saxophone produces. And, um, and when I listen to a really good instrumental piece, I feel that it gets right inside of me and Strings, it has this quirky thing of both calming and motivating at the same time. I think it must somehow, I don't know, support my cognitive process because I do some of my best work listening to the saxophone. Ah, fantastic. <laughs> well, I'm a fan of that response. I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan and his E Street Band always have saxophones, so I, I can understand that. Uh, what would you tell them about humans? Mm, so the biggest thing about humans is that every single human being is completely unique from the next. I think that's what I would tell them. So if you understand one human being and you think you can use that experience to understand everyone, then forget it. I suppose by interacting with as many human beings as possible and gathering intelligence, which I guess is what they would do, it might mean that they could draw some generalizations, but there will always be some quirky things to catch them out. So treat human beings with care and respect. I suppose not be similar to life in general on Earth, really. Great. And would there be any human traits you would hold back from telling them about? No, because in the long run, nobody benefits from hiding the truth, do they? 
and you almost always get found out at some stage. So just fess up. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, let's, let's get back into the, the, the detail when it comes to payroll. We're going to go into section two questions. Five quick questions. And I'm really keen to find out a little bit more about your role at the CIPP. At the moment, you're an elected board director at the CIPP. So what does that work involve and what motivates you to even stand for election? Yes, yeah, so I am, Nick. That's right. And I was very fortunate to have been elected onto the CIPP board four years ago. So what does it involve? Well, the role of a non-executive director is a huge one. Definitely shouldn't be underestimated, whether it's for CIPP or a large multinational organization with a presence across the globe. Sure. It's no different. The role is exactly the same. So what is it? Well, essentially, it's about making sure that the CIPP is compliant in all of its operational activity with not only regulatory requirements, but also its duties in law. And that's a big one. So governance is a, a huge part of this. Ensuring the financial viability of the institute. And, you know, to do that, we have to monitor the budgets, the spend, the investments and the risk management. And um, so we need strategies around that, which we implement and, you know, sort of adhere to. Having the ability to set strategic direction for the institute. So that's a really big one because it's got to be relevant to the membership. Sure. But also support the fulfillment of CIPP's goals and ambitions. See, you've got to address both, really. It can't just be one or the other. So it's quite a complex role. It's quite, quite a demanding, complex position to have. It absolutely is. And, you know, you've also got to be proactive in being the voice of the members in the Institute, representing views to external audiences in a positive way, you know, to enhance the Institute's reputation and further the development of the Institute's profile in the industry, as well as the profile of all the professionals working in the industry. So it's huge and really important and definitely not to be undertaken lightly. It must have been quite an exciting time for you then, because over the last four years, we've probably seen more changes, sort of instrumental changes in the payroll industry than, than ever before in terms of its status being raised within businesses, just gaining chartered status as well. And, and as an industry now, it's more recognised professionally than it ever was before. So what are some of the highlights for you that you've, you've experienced over the last four years? That's right, Nick. I am standing for re-election this time because obviously my, um, my first tenure on the board, the four years, has now come to an end. So if I want to continue it, sort of delivering that, that good work, I need to obviously uh, get myself re-elected. So what sort of things are we going to look, be looking at? Well, you know, the CIPP is committed to continuing delivery of its traditional core quality services. And that's across the diverse group of members. So we need to be able to make sure that we have programs that suit all needs to help them stay up to date and compliant, but also, as I said, whilst promoting and enhancing industry profiles. But we also need to keep an eye on what else is going on. So we know that Industry 4 is here and we need to understand what that means for us. Sure. You know, artificial intelligence. I listened to your podcast the other day around blockchain technology. What does that mean for us within the industry? Is it going to have a big impact or not? And if so, how will it be applied? These are all things that the Institute needs to keep on its horizon and keep researching and keeping pace with so that when our members need information and training programs, we're there ready with them to deliver them. We're not playing catch up in the background. Those are the things that we you know, we, we've just sort of pulled together, interestingly enough, we've recently been working on the short, medium and long term strategy that we've we've been talking to the operational team about within CIPP. You know, and some of these themes and flavours will start to play out in some of those strategies that you'll probably see coming on stream in the next months and, and years to come. Great. Sounds like an exciting time. Yeah, for sure. I like to see how important it is and technology moves on so fast. But it's great to, to have a, a conversation with yourself, you know, someone like yourself who's, who's so passionate about just improving the industry for everybody. And if, if that means, you know, using up your time, standing for election to help deliver those things, I think that's fantastic. So kudos to you, Ros, and I wish you the best of luck in getting re-elected uh, onto the board. I hope that works out for you. I, I think that you know, utilising some of your knowledge, though, for the listeners that, that, are, that are tuned in right now, aside from your operational power management experience, you're also involved in some voluntary work developing and helping others in terms of their leadership skills. We're not even going to tackle that today because there's just so much to get through. 
But one thing I do want people to know is you've also set up your own payroll consultancy business. And it's known as well-paid consulting. And I understand that your business offers services such as payroll improvement strategy, HR payroll implementation services, software reviews, vendor management, and so on. Now, it's not a plug for your business because I know you didn't know I was going to ask this, but the reason I'm bringing it up is that, again, whilst a lot of people want to get to the top of the payroll tree in terms of that board level involvement, there are also a lot of payroll professionals out there who sometimes feel like they've hit a ceiling and they, rather than work for an employer, they want to take uh, and the risk, the jump, and the journey, if you like, into managing their own consultancy business. So I'm quite interested to know what your take would be in helping other people getting, you know, if you want to start their own business, what would they need to do? What advice could you give them? It's obviously a very nerve wracking decision to move from PAYE to self-employed as well. So what advice would you give to any aspiring payroll entrepreneurs out there who are interested in making such a move? Okay, so... Well, being self-employed isn't right for everyone, Nick. So, you know, if job security is your number one priority, along with financial security, you're going to have to do some real soul searching and ask yourself some difficult questions before you even think about embarking on a career path that involves self-employment. You know, you, you probably might even want to talk to, I don't know, a friendly accountant or a financial advisor because they are skilled in helping guide you through that thought process so they will ask you the difficult questions that you might not be able to ask yourself or even know to ask yourself. So I definitely recommend doing that. Get some independent advice about whether, first of all, it's right for you as an individual. If you're still interested, once you've gone through that stage, <laughs> for me, I think the next step is to be absolutely clear about what you want to do and deliver. So what's your niche? Sure. It's easier to start delivering services that, you know, you're experienced in and, then come and that come naturally to you rather than trying to learn on the job with no prior experience. Sure. You know, because in a self-employed consultant role, you're going to be very much under the spotlight because your client will be expecting great things from you. They're paying a lot of money and they won't be prepared to have to micromanage you through delivery of a project. That's great advice. Yeah, don't overreach because you're just going to lose credibility in the industry if you try to do that. So, you know, start small and be comfortable about what you're trying to do. But And finally, I'd say, you know, make sure you have access to consultant communities and networks because that helps you to take advantage of others' knowledge and experiences. I mean, you know, I share information and have discussions with others on a regular basis because we help each other out. And it also potentially gives you access to future opportunities. So I've passed on many contracts. Uh, you know, contract opportunity to others uh, where I've had a call, but I couldn't progress it because I was already engaged in a contract. Sure. And included in this, I'd recommend agencies such as yourself at James Gray Associates, Nick, because making them your friends is important as they're your eyes and ears on the ground in the industry. And people like yourselves will always be on the lookout for highly skilled individuals to recommend to clients. So you need to build that network up. Those would be my sort of yeah. um, initial suggestions. Absolutely agree. Obviously, I would on the uh, the agency piece for sure. But I mean, I'm also a big advocate for networking and anyone that's seen any of the talks that I do at the CIPP or elsewhere. You know, I think that's something that payroll people could definitely get better at. And the power of a network could be, be really, really useful tool, particularly if you are looking to go and launch your own consultancy service in the future. So having run your own consultancy business now, what kind of project do you relish the most? What do you like the most? Again, I think, as I said before, it's about improvement whether that be improvement of the strategic direction of the payroll service delivery or the structure of a team and the sort of development of that team within that structure it doesn't really matter as long as there's a challenge there so for me it's all about improvement developing and improving and moving forward if there's no challenge there, it doesn't engage me. I'm not switched on. I need to know that there's a, a good challenge for me to get my teeth into and a strategic one that I can utilize all my skills um, and experiences bring into that role. You know, and that I've seen um, a senior level, I suppose, as well, because I like to be that. I think of it as a strategic conduit between the board and the senior management within an organization selling recommendations and strategies and the operational teams around the delivery of that. So, you know, you sort of work with both 
both sort of arenas and that requires different skill sets in itself but you're that pivotal conduit in the middle sure sure that makes perfect sense let's take the podcast full circle then and we started at the start of this podcast we were talking about your talk on developing a strategic approach to reward design you've just talked then about you know the projects that you love are tend to involve improvements in one way or another one of the projects that i picked up on that you dealt with um, was when you were managing a sixteen and a half thousand employee payroll at direct line group and you were involved there in aligning a number of their functions I think it included reward, HR, tax, risk, and finance. Just last question, really. why do you think alignment is so important? And you talked about it a little bit at the start of the podcast, but why should other businesses listening to this or functions, if you're a power manager, follow this strategy? What are the, what are the benefits in, in that kind of group alignment, in your view? For me, it's all about stakeholder engagement, really, Nick. So I spoke earlier about cross-functional reviews of processes and you know, how that helped turn around a, a client experience. And it's much the same, really. So, you know, as an observer, often organizations view their operational processes in isolation within their own functional areas. Sure. And what that means is that whilst the processes might work for them, they never consider the impact of the way that those processes are delivered within the rest of the functional areas that either feed into that process or receive outputs from it. So as an analogy, I guess it's a bit like implementing a payroll system, yeah? If you if you build it without considering the format of the data that will be input from HR, for example, how are you going to pay anyone correctly? You know, and if you don't consider the format of the information that others are going to need from you out of the back end, such as finance, how will the business account for the cost generated by the payroll activity? So having that engagement with all your stakeholders plugs the gaps that might exist in those processes. and. Remember, we also spoke earlier about becoming a trusted advisor to the business. Well, for me, this is certainly an area where individuals can build that reputation because by engaging with your stakeholder community in a proactive way, not only delivers the right result for the the business, you know, that your processes are built to deliver and maintain and sustain operational activity across the organization in a compliant and effective way, you're going to be viewed as a proactive leader and change manager within the business. You know, and that's what's key here, isn't it? I think one of my favourite things there was you gave an analogy that was a payroll-specific analogy that only people listening to the Power Podcast will probably ever get. <laughs> I always <laughs> like the analogy. Of yeah, it's just like when you implement a payroll system. Anyone who's listening to this that isn't payroll related, we would have lost them at that moment. So that's bad. Okay, so we're going to open the vault shortly. Last question, I have to ask it because you're clearly very motivated. You're clearly passionate about all the things you do, a lot of it voluntarily. Um, and you've got you know, yourself involved in so many different aspects uh, of payroll, not just in terms of launching your own business, but developing your educational journey, the different kind of roles and projects you've taken on. What is it that keeps you motivated? What soaks the files within you that make you want to keep striving to not just improve your, your own credentials and role within payroll, if you like, but also improve the industry as a whole and those around you, which I know is something you're also really passionate about. What is it about the industry that makes you so passionate about pushing its boundaries? And, and I guess a few questions coming in at once here, really, but what's your ultimate goal? I think what fires me up about working in this industry is the fact that nothing ever stays still. You know, I've talked a lot about I like being constantly challenged and I really enjoy continually learning and developing all my skill sets. So I suppose it's a marriage made in heaven for me, really, isn't it, working in payroll? Because <laughs> there's always something new to learn. But what I also enjoy is, is sharing that learning with others, you know, to help them raise their own prof- profile within the industry. And that helps them individually make a difference, I suppose, within their own sphere of influence. But collectively helps make a difference within the industry at large, proving just how critical it is that payroll is fully considered and represented at board level within organisations. Sure. So the ultimate goal for me, well, I would still like to think that we might one day, you know, see payroll directors on the board of organisations, payroll standing up in their own right rather than as a subdivision of another function, because that's when we'll really truly make an impact and a difference. That's it for me. And personally, well, my next step is obviously to achieve individual chartered status with CIPP. So as I said before, I need to get my skates on and do that. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, a great way to to end the questions for the podcast. We're going to enter the vault. Entering the vault. 
What is the one piece of advice you would give to someone working in payroll right now? Never stop learning and developing. It's going to stand you in good stead. And never be afraid to take a lateral move, as it's probably going to give you experience and skill sets you'd never have dreamed of seeking, but which would be nonetheless extremely useful. Fantastic. You're speaking to my recruiter heartstrings with that response. So thank you for that. (laughs) With the benefit of hindsight, what would be the one career decision you would change? Ooh, to complete formal payroll qualifications earlier, I think. I was 30 when I graduated from the MSC and, and, you know, my career took off. But I feel now like I'm running out of time to do all the things that I want to do before I retire. (laughs) Excellent. If you had the power of foresight and could change the entire payroll industry with one action or improvement, what would that action or improvement be? Okay, where do you start with a question like that? So for me personally, I think, as I said before, if payroll had developed as an independent function rather than a subdivision of either HR or finance, I think a lot of the current issues we observe and experience within organisations could have been avoided, particularly from a compliance perspective. But I'd also say from a communications perspective, you know, as payroll touches all departments at some stage or another. So it's pivotal to an organization's smooth running. Great. Fantastic. Who motivates you and why? My three-year-old daughter. (laughs) I observe, you know, her capacity and ability to learn and the fact that nothing phases her. She just instinctively overcomes the obstacles that appear in front of her. And I'm now learning from her approach to life, and I'm, I'm trying desperately to adopt some simple skills to dealing with challenging situations, you know, in the way that she does. Yeah. I think we can learn a lot from going back to basics and not overthinking things. I think we try to make things too complicated. Yeah, it's a great answer. Love it. Last question. If you didn't work in payroll, what would you be doing? I'd be a full-time actress. I love playing different roles, Nick, learning different accents as well. That switches me on. And, you know, being somebody completely different, it's a whole new world. As, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this with your background as well that you've shared with us today. And do you know what? It's a liberating experience as well. Fabulous. <laughs> Fantastic. Absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining on the Power Podcast today, Roz. It's been a real delight to learn all about your experiences, but also you've given the listeners some fantastic takeaway, practical advice and lessons um, and pieces of learning they can take away and hopefully implement to help you know, elevate the industry as a whole and help people achieve their own goals of, of, of raising their career within the industry. So thank you so much for that. If there's anyone listening to this podcast who's interested in voting for Ros Hendren to be re-elected to the CIPP board, uh, when is the last opportunity to vote, Ros? So the deadline for members to vote online is the 30th of November at 12 noon. So make sure you cast your vote. Fantastic. And can they access the, um, the ability to vote through the CIPP website, I presume? Yeah, so all members will have received a link to access the online voting. Yes, yeah, so, so they should just follow the instructions. Fantastic. I wish you the best of luck in the vote. So those interested in finding out more about Roz, um, I will put a link to her LinkedIn profile in the episode notes. Obviously, hopefully we'll be seeing Roz re-elected as part of the CIPP board. So I wish you every success with that, Roz. And we'd just like to thank everyone for listening into the Payroll Podcast. The next episode will be out in a couple of weeks. been listening to the payroll podcast with nick day of jga recruitment specialist payroll recruiters if you would like to feature on a future podcast please contact us for a wealth of world-class payroll content please visit us at jgarecruitment.com see you next week